0: Tonight, for our 192nd episode, we discuss the political satire Duck Soup from 1933, celebrating its 90th anniversary this year. Directed by Leo McCary, writing and music by Burt Kalmar and Harry Ruby, with Arthur Sheikman and Nat Perrin, starring Groucho Marx as Rufus T. Firefly, Harpo Marx as Pinky, Chico Marx as Chicalini, Zeppo Marx as Lieutenant Bob Rowland, Margaret Dumont as Mrs. Gloria Teasdale, Louis Calhern as Ambassador Trentino of Sylvania, Raquel Torres as Vera Markel, and Edgar Kennedy as the blustery lemonade vendor. Recognition for this movie? Duck Soup was released on November 17, 1933. It was the last of five Paramount Picture films released by the Marx Brothers. Compared to the Marx Brothers' previous films, Duck Soup was a box office disappointment, though not entirely a quote-unquote flop, as is sometimes reported. Although it did not do as well as Horse Feathers, it was the sixth-highest-grossing film of 1933, according to both Glenn Mitchell in the Marx Brothers Encyclopedia and Simon Luvish in Monkey Business, his biography of the Marx Brothers, which I guess I might need to put on a Christmas list for you at some point if you haven't read it already. I have not. However, the film was a box-office disappointment for Paramount. I guess that's the only thing that counts is how the studio did. (laughs) Yeah. The film opened to mixed reviews, although this by itself did not end the group's association with Paramount. Bitter contract disputes, including a threatened boycott by the Marxes, soured their negotiations with Paramount just as Duck Soup went into production. After the film fulfilled their five-picture obligation to the studio, the Marxes and Paramount agreed to part ways. While contemporaneous critics of Duck Soup felt it did not quite rise to the level of its predecessors, critical opinion has evolved and the film has since achieved the status of a classic. Duck Soup is now widely considered among many critics and fans to be a masterpiece of comedy as well as the Marx Brothers' finest film. Most critics at the time disliked it because of its dated look at politics. Some modern critics are also unimpressed. Even Groucho himself did not initially think too highly of the film. When asked the significance of the film's politics, Groucho only shrugged and said, What significance? We were just four Jews trying to get a laugh. Nevertheless, the Marx Brothers were ecstatic when Benito Mussolini took the film as a personal insult and banned it in Italy. Revived interest in the film and other 1930 comedies in general during the 1960s was seen as a dovetailing with the rebellious side of American culture in that decade. American literary critic Harold Bloom considers the end of Duck Soup one of the greatest works of American art produced in the 20th century. In 1990, Duck Soup was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry. In 2000, readers of Total Film Magazine voted Duck Soup the 29th greatest comedy of all time. It is also one of the earliest films to appear on Roger Ebert's list of the great movies. Duck Soup is also frequently cited as a major influence on the comedic side of The Beatles and the Beatles themselves admitted that it was an inspiration for their film, Help. The film is also recognized by the American Film Institute in the following lists. AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies at number 85, AFI's 100 Years 100 Laughs at number 5, and AFI's 100 Years 100 Movies 10th Anniversary Edition at number 60. Duck Soup currently holds a 91% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 93 score on Metacritic, and a 3.9 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So, Dad, as we begin each week, what is your relationship to this film? I loved Groucho Marx growing up. Used to see him on different
1: shows, on The Tonight Show, etc. My dad always talked longingly about when they first got television, Groucho was doing the TV show, You Bet Your Life, and I've always had an interest. I I watched several of their early films and enjoyed them a lot, and then About the time I was going through a period where I was watching all these old reruns of What's My Line, Groucho was a uh, regular panelist for a while, and so I kind of got interested in all of their films. So I went out and actually bought the entire collection of the Marx Brothers films and sat down and started watching them, and this was one of those that I watched. That would have been about uh, 15 years
0: ago. That sounds about right in the timeline. I think you bought the entire collection at, ironically, a Black Friday sale, and we just got done with that, I guess, consumerist holiday. But I guess part of my relationship to it is, again, through you, like most of the movies that I've found. And for a while, I kind of actively avoided them because I didn't think they would be necessarily funny for me. And so when I finally broke down and finished the AFI top 100 list, both the 1998 and 2007 versions and this and a night at the opera being on those lists, it was something I had to finish. And since I had time during the pandemic, I finally put them on. And I believe I remember saying this in our, a night at the opera episode. I was frankly shocked by how funny they still appeared. And again, If you've not heard any of our previous episodes, I am the renowned comedy snob. I hold myself to account on that. There is not a lot that tickles my fancy anymore. It used to be you did not have to try very hard to get me to laugh and roll on the floor. And I was the class clown in a certain regard because I was the kid who laughed like a hyena and would just bust it just about anything. And now it's almost the complete opposite. It takes a lot to get me to laugh at shit. So for me to say that I still think these are funny is a high bar to clear. Well, they're timeless.
1: And part of it is is the two areas that do not age is acerbic wit, which is Groucho, and just the bizarreness uh, that can uh, be accentuated through pantomime, which is Harpo. And the two of them did not age one bit groucho is the predecessor there would not be george carlin richard pryor the people that made the intellectual double entente where they twist the words to make them funny uh that have the ability to be acerbic to be to use satire to be uh to be snide and make it into some sort of a funny. Anecdote or joke, there's so many of those that are in this film, and it basically lampoons so much of government and the way that uh, government operates and tries to make it seem so serious when, in fact, sometimes it's just comical in and of itself.
0: Well, I'm not a particularly big fan of physical humor, and I would say probably Harpo is my third favorite of the primary Marx Brothers. But... To say that the acerbic and the witty doesn't necessarily age is not something I am going to agree with. In fact, I think there's at least a couple of moments in this that contextually don't age well, particularly how Grocho seems to be constantly fat-shaming Mrs. Teasdale. True. So there are moments where it it doesn't age well always the best because sometimes there's a context with which we're just missing things. So a historical context or a cultural context that we wouldn't have gotten 90 years from now. But the same premise or setup or how to structure those types of jokes I think is still funny. So even if the joke doesn't necessarily age as well itself, you could still use the bones of it. You know, and I was chuckling along with watching this again over the weekend, which you were tickled by. Yes, there is something a little bit different about these that they haven't aged. And I don't want to just write it off as anything can necessarily last or survive and be still labeled this funny 90 years later. This is a little bit special for me because you put on the stooges and I'm just not nearly as into that. You put on Bob Hope. And that's just going to age poorly for me. So hope does not age well. So I think this is a little bit special because it is a form of comedy that I think a lot of modern comics derive their work from. And I, I think you're right that Groucho is the predecessor or the forefather of a lot of the great comics that I love. The guys who turn either societal mores on their edge or use wordplay you know, double meanings, get you to think one way and then trick you the other way. Somewhat of a surprise humor in that regard.
1: I mean, the one thing that I noted that you really enjoyed was when Harpo pulls the blowtorch out of his pants to light his cigar.
0: Well, that's just because it was such overkill. (laughs) That's the whole point. Yes. So what is the movie about? If it's about anything. I think
1: it's just a send up of politics. I mean, this is at a time, 1933, where the world and especially Europe was in levels of upheaval. I mean, we had uh, Mussolini's rise to power in, in uh, Italy. We had Franco uh, in the Spanish Civil War and that within that time frame. And I think this was just the Marx Brothers way of pointing out the stupidity that really is. We think... Government and people in government know what they're doing. And in actuality, most of the time, they're just winging it and really aren't as bright as we think they are.
0: Honestly, I, I, again, would have to counterfactual that. I think the going sentiment at the moment is, is that people in government know absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. The public sentiment has, I think, gone too far in the other direction from where this movie maybe takes its its cues. But that doesn't mean it's still not poignant for a couple of things, like good governance or diplomacy, such as if you hatch a plan to get the ambassador of Italy to slap you in the face and then you end up slapping him in the face, it may not go well for you. True. So there are not a lot of straight comedies that garner this much critical praise Why do you think the Marx Brothers have broken through years worth of comedy even now? Because I remember distinctly, I think the first time I watched this was on a like the TCM app. It was like watch TCM. And because we had the direct TV sign in, I could watch this. But I, I watched the introductory clips and I think they were showing it during a specific point in time where they had a pre recorded thing with Billy Crystal commenting how the Marx Brothers were still influential to modern comedians. Why is it that these guys are this special?
1: There are certain comedians because of the type of comedy, the level of intellect involved, uh, their connection to people in general that just simply are pioneers and do not age. The Marx Brothers, I think, continue. I would put... Some other comedians in that same category, one of which would be Jack Benny. People now don't realize exactly as much influence as Jack Benny had over an entire couple of generations of comedians and of entertainment in general. I'm trying to think of a few other comedians that seemed to. I think there's still a large following for Abbott and Costello simply because Lua Costello had a a self-effacing method. So there's some that just seem to live because they were so fresh and original at the time they first came out. Steve Martin in his heyday was in that category where they were so different from everybody else that they had significant impact over a long period of time. I think the Marx Brothers are unique because the three brothers play so well to each other, both advancing each other's humor as well as being supportive of each other and making each other better. They have a certain comic timing. They have a certain ability. Each of the three has a completely distinct style, which makes them unusual. So they're a group, but still Three individuals. As a result, they've had so much influence over a broad range of comedy that they're held in kind of a pantheon of being, you know, in the forefront of so much different comedy and being so unique for their time frame that they've been able to last because they are so
0: iconic. I would agree with a lot of that. I think one of the big things that I recognize in in really analytically considering them has been one that each of them covers a very distinct type of comedy. So we already talked about Groucho with his acerbic wit and his ability to be very sarcastic, but also twist a lot of words. I would put Chico in the kind of intelligent idiot category that he can play the dumb guy, but who also has some cleverness to him. And then obviously, Harpo is kind of the slapstick forerunner. He's silent for the most part. He only communicates through horn noises. And most of his comedy is very physical. In a way, Harpo is the precursor to what Jim Carrey was in the 90s. Mm. Yeah. So I think the combination of all three of those, and I think you made a good point in that they don't seem to step on each other. And each of the movies highlights each portion of the comedy and gives them their own spotlight, but doesn't necessarily counteract what the other ones are doing. So when they're all in the same scene together, it doesn't feel like they're competing or fighting against each other because they're not trying to be a different style of humor. It's somewhat complementary, I think is part of the reason that these have aged as well. On top of that, I can't speak to what the novelty of their humor and maybe how far ahead of time they were other than to say they're still funny somehow. And so they have to have some elements of modern humor or modern humor is borrowed elements from them that make them somewhat classic, you know, in a sense that I don't get from a lot of comedy from the time.
1: Well, and I find it interesting, the two youngest brothers, and it was in this film, was Zeppo. There's a younger brother, Gummo. Those two did not spend nearly the amount of time that the older three brothers did at Vaudeville. So they never really developed their comedic voices. And they realized early on, Gummo never was in films. He gave up after the theater, figuring he wasn't funny like the other three or the, the three older brothers. So he ended up becoming an agent, and then Zeppo stepped away after this film and didn't do any further, and he joined his brother running uh, a, uh, an agency, in fact, representing the Marx Brothers and Jack Benny, George Burns, and Gracie Allen, etc. A lot of the
0: comedic Jews that were in Hollywood doing TV and films. So I was going to say, yeah, that there was a very common through line between all of those.
1: Well, considering that Jack Betty and the Marks brothers were technically cousins in law because uh, Mary Livingston, her real name was Sadie Marks originally, and she was a second cousin to the brothers.
0: So you ready to dig more into our movie and give us a plot summary? I am.
1: Duck Soup, a classic comedy directed by Leo McCary and starring the Reverend Marx Brothers, is a cinematic tour de force that gleefully satirizes politics and war. Released in 1933, the film unfolds in the fictional realm of Fredonia, a nation on the brink of bankruptcy and political chaos. Groucho Marx, in his iconic role as Rufus T. Firefly, Is appointed as the country's leader, bringing his signature wit and anarchic charm to the forefront. As Firefly navigates diplomatic relations with the neighboring nation of Sylvania, chaos ensues, leading to a riotous blend of slapstick humor and razor sharp satire. Duck Soup remains a timeless masterpiece, celebrated for its brilliant wordplay, absurd antics, and a biting, critique of governmental absurdity that resonates across generations. The film's legacy endures as a testament to the Marx Brothers' unparalleled comedic genius and their ability to use laughter
0: as a powerful weapon against the follies of the world. Thank you. Did you know? Groucho Marx offered the following explanation for the movie's title, Take two turkeys, one goose, four cabbages, but no duck, and mix them together. After one taste, you'll duck soup the rest of your life. Did you know? Screenwriters Harry Ruby and Burt Kalmar were standing on the set one day when an extra standing next to them said, I don't know who wrote this stuff, but they ought to be arrested. They should be in a different business. Kalmar, who was known as a rational and calm man, said to Ruby, I'm going over to hit him. Who does he think he is? He's just an extra. But before Fisticuffs erupted, Kalmer and Ruby were informed that Chico Marx had paid the extra to rib the screenwriters just for the hell of it. (laughs) Did you know? This is the final film of Zeppo Marx. After the film's premiere, he quit the Marx Brothers, citing a dissatisfaction with movie acting overall, and a weariness with being the butt of jokes regarding him as the unfunny Marx Brother. Did you know? Leo McCary told Cahiers du Cinema in 1967, quote, I don't like duck soup so much. I never chose to shoot this film. The Marx Brothers absolutely wanted me to direct them in a film. I refused. Then they got angry with the studio, broke their contract, and left. Believing myself secure, I accepted the renewal of my own contract with the studio. Soon, the Marx Brothers were reconciled with Paramount, and I found myself in the process of directing the Marx Brothers. The most surprising thing about this film was that I succeeded in not going crazy, for I really did not want to work with them. They were completely mad. Did you know? The residents of Fredonia, New York, protested because they feared that the similar-sounding nation would hurt their city's reputation. The Marx Brothers quipped in response, telling them to change the name of their town to keep from hurting their movie. Did you know? It was Leo McCary's idea to film the mirror sequence based on an old vaudeville routine. It reportedly took only two hours to film. And with that, we'll take our first break and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode next week for our 193rd episode, we discuss another Western classic with Shane from 1953, celebrating its 70th anniversary this year directed by George Stevens, written by A.B. Guthrie Jr., music by Victor Young, starring Alan Ladd, Gene Arthur, and Jack Palance. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Dad, we have best performance up first here. Who do you have down? I have Harpo. I think that this is actually probably one of the
1: best films Harpo did because there were so many different over-the-top props, actions, scenes, and such. So I went with Harpo. I mean, Groucho is usually the better of them, simply because I personally relate more to his sense of humor. But in this particular case, he had some great lines, but I don't think this was his best performance. I think Harpo stole the show.
0: So let me ask this. Do you have anyone other than the three brothers in any of your three major categories? No. Okay. And do you have them all for a different one? No. Oh, so you have somebody doubling up somewhere. No. Well,
1: kind of. Groucho's secondary. And most charismatic, I have to give to all three brothers collectively as a unit because of their ability to interplay and support and enhance each other's comedy.
0: So it might be surprising. I think I mentioned it originally on the A Night at the Opera episode, but for whatever reason, I like Chico always the most, so he got my best performance. I think the way he has to deliver a lot of the rather roundabout logic lines, I mean, going back to opera and how he has to talk about the contract writing, this one, there's a line in here that I'll give later about them following Firefly and then going to the ball game or not going to the ball game. The way he has to deliver those and with such quick, wry seriousness, but that they're just funny written. I, I think he, at least for me, is always going to be my favorite of the f- performers, and I kind of that's how I define best, at least for this one, because I had Groucho in best secondary again, always great to hear as a Cerbic wit. And I had most charismatic as Harpo.
1: Okay.
0: I mean I like I said, I, I'm not a huge physical comedy guy, but I found Harpo endearing in this movie, particularly the lemonade stand guy and his kind of like battles with him back and forth. Uh, I thought were fairly endearing. But Groucho's just got a way of deliver of line delivery as well that is always going to tickle me. So I just, because they're so defining to how these movies are done. To say somebody else wrote the jokes or the comedy, even if it's not their words directly, it feels like they make each of these pieces their own, regardless of the movie. So I I thought there was going to be no way to go except that in some capacity, you have all three of them nominated for something of one of these categories. It makes sense.
1: And I and I as far as charismatic, I mean, I could have given it to any one of the three. So I gave it to him collectively because I think the three of them together are more than the individual sum of the parts.
0: Let's go to best scene then. So I have eight down. I have the introduction of Firefly. So after the initial kind of setup and then his first entrance into the main hall, and they play the Fredonia anthem, and etc. I Then I have Ambassador Trentino, and then we also get the introduction of Ciccolini and Pinky. Then I have the Lemonade Stand. I have Secretary of War, where Ciccolini's nominated as Secretary of War. I have the War Plans, which is where they break into Teasdale's house and start to impersonate Firefly. Then I have the Mirror Exchange, which I will define as the open doorway and Groucho playing off of, I can't remember which one of them is the one that he's copying. It's Harpo. Is it Harpo? Yes,
1: because Harpo reprises that scene with Lucy in an episode of
0: I Love Lucy. Okay. Uh, Then I have the trial of Ciccolini, where he's before the, I would guess, Congress of Fredonia. And then the final two war, which is maybe the last 10 to 15 minutes of the film. Out of those, what did you feel was the best scene? Uh, the mirror exchange. It's just such a
1: classic. And it it has to be done with such precision. I mean, it's got to be to the point where the two brothers know what each is going to do and how they were going to do it, and the facial expressions and the mannerisms. To fa- the fact that they were able to do it in two hours is amazing. It tells me that there's more symmetry between them than
0: normal actors would possess. Agreed. It's the most technically sound scene of the film. And it's usually the one that most people point to. I I think I also have it for my most indelible. Yes, I do. I do too. Because it would be one thing if the entire scene was done in sequences or in quick cuts or that they would do like a small bit here and there for the most part the camera is rolling the entire time and they never cut away. So they did the entire sequence with quite literally mirroring each other down to the effect and the timing that would have had to have gone into that without ever really taking a break or without ever having to do multiple takes. It was just all one flowing thing. And for that to be two hours is amazing because I can't imagine that any one of my siblings and I could rehearse and do half of that.
1: (laughs) You'd be fighting after five minutes. I
0: don't think it would take that long.
1: I was being gracious. It would depend on which sibling. That's true. One's more combative and the other is more irritating. At least to you.
0: Yes. You have that exactly correct. Exactly how I would label it. As far as favorite scene, I have the lemonade stand as my favorite scene because it covers kind of two distinct sequences, but they're both just comedic gold because you, you have the acerbic idiocy of Chico at the same time that Harpo is just going back and forth and the guy cannot seem to get anything but whiplash between the two of them.
1: I have the same thing. I thought that that scene really allowed both, Chico and Harpo to show their comedic chops and really reach the best performances they
0: could uh, in that film. So we'll take our second break here and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, releasing in the early part of this December, friend of the show, Adam Hitchcock of the streaming circuit podcast. And I are back with our special monthly series on the Marvel cinematic universe, where we will be discussing each film from the original Iron Man up through Avengers Endgame. The first half of each show will be on his feed, and the second half we will apply the Stan Lee rubric to each film to determine the greatest Marvel film of all time. This month we're covering Iron Man 3 from 2013. Don't miss out. Make sure you are subscribed to both feeds to get these episodes. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. Elliot Silverstein, 96, American Film and Television Director.
1: A man called Horse, Nightmare, Honeymoon, The Car, and one of my favorite films, or a film I
0: enjoy a lot, Cat Blue. I would have never guessed that about you. I think I have watched the first half an hour of that film and it went off like freebie or whatever, wherever it was, because it's on like the top ten westerns of all time on the AFI ten top ten list, and so I'd been meaning to watch it, but. It was such an odd film. It was one of my dad's favorites. He thought it was
1: hilarious. Okay. And so I would watch it with him when I was a kid.
0: Your dad really liked Lee Marvin, didn't he? Yes, he did. Which is good because the movie Mom chose for our Christmas celebration or our dinner-in-a-movie type of uh, holiday activity has Lee Marvin in it. Oh, good. Phil Quaterro, 67.
1: American Music Industry Executive, former president of Virgin Records, and Warner Brothers Music. And Marty Croft, 86, American Children's TV producer, did the uh, Saturday morning show Land of the Lost and one of my favorites, which was
0: H.R. Puffin Stuff. We also have one late entry to the In Memoriam that happened this afternoon. American actress Frances Sternhagen, 93. She was a two-time Tony winner for The Good Doctor and The Heiress, but also was the originator of the lead actress performance in On Golden Pond on Broadway, as well as was a a major player in Equus back in the, I think, the 80s. But 70s. 70s? Okay. 70s. But how most people know her is she was Emmy-nominated for appearances on both Cheers and Sex and the City, on cheers she was cliff's mother. Ah, yes. Now you now I made the
1: connection. I knew the name but I couldn't place it. So yes.
0: Unfortunately passed away today. All right. Well, it's said. And so we remember these here for their contributions with a moment of silence in their honor. Thank you. Not that we can really commemorate them well with any of the quotes from a Marx Brothers movie, but we're going to try. Best Funniest Lines Not that I care, but where is your husband? Why, he's dead. I bet he's just using that as an excuse. I was with him to the very end. No wonder he passed away. I held him in my arms and kissed him. Oh, I see. Then it was murder. Rufus T. Firefly Gentlemen,
1: Chukolini may talk like an idiot. Look like an idiot, but don't let that fool you. He really is an idiot. I implore you, send him back to his father and brothers who are waiting for him with open arms in the penitentiary. I suggest that we give him 10 years in Leavenworth or 11 years in 12 worth. Ciccolini, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll take five and 10 in
0: Woolworths. Ambassador Trentino. Now, Ciccolini, I want a full detailed report of your investigation. All right, then I tell you. Monday we uh, watch uh, Firefly's house, but he no come out. He wasn't home. Tuesday we go to the ball game, but he fool us. He no show up. Wednesday he go to the ball game, but we fool him. We no show up. Thursday it was a doubleheader; nobody show up. Friday it rained all day. There was no ball game. We stay home. We listen to it over the radio. I read that to your mother when I
1: was putting this my notes together, and she said, "Well, how did they listen to it on the radio if it was rained out?" <laughs> I'm like, okay, honey, that's the joke. Oh, okay. Ambassador Trentino, I didn't come here to
0: be insulted. Firefly, that's what you think. Secretary of Labor, the Department of Labor wishes to report that the workers of Fredonia are demanding shorter hours. Firefly, very well, we'll give them shorter hours. We'll start by cutting their lunch hour to 20 minutes. Minister of Finance, Your Excellency... Here's the Treasury
1: Department's report, sir. I hope you'll find it clear. Firefly. Clear, huh? Why a four-year-old child could understand this report. To, uh, Roland. Run out and find me a four-year-old child. I can't make
0: heads or tail of it. Lemonade vendor. I'll teach you to kick me. Ciccolini. You don't have to teach him me. I know how. Ambassador Trentino. I'm
1: willing to do anything to prevent this war. Firefly, it's too late. I've already paid a month's rent on the battlefield. I'm out. Mrs. Teasdale, as chairman of the reception committee, I open you with welcome arms. Firefly, is that so? How late do you stay open? Firefly, now you're the secretary of war. What kind of army do you think we ought to have? Ciccolini. Well, I tell you, I think, I think we should have a standing army. Firefly, why Why a standing army?
0: Because we save money on chairs. That's it. All right, so that takes us to the Stanley rubric. Legacy is up first. Do you want to go first or second? Go ahead. So this is a tale of two halves. On the one hand, I think it's revered by comedians and people in the industry, critics, who love these movies and... We've come to appreciate it through them a little bit, although I think you had more of an appreciation going back to your youth than I did about these. But I've at least come around on them due to critic sentiment. Otherwise, I probably would have not ever picked these up, and I enjoy them. It's made me want to go and watch the other ones if they were available. It's a little bit hard to find them sometimes. But on the other hand, can you think of anybody that you regularly interact with that can name more than one of the Marx brothers. You might be able to get enough people that will name Groucho, which I still think is a very limited percentage of the population. You might get 25%.
1: It depends on your age because people at my age or older will be able to remember the Marx brothers better. Unfortunately, last year I lost a friend uh, who was a judge who had in his chambers uh, movie posters of the Marx Brothers and was a huge Marx Brothers fan. And when I would go and visit and we'd sit in chambers, we would talk about the Marx Brothers films. But it's it's rare. I mean, these are 90-year-old films.
0: And you're talking about people in your peer age group. You just turned 60 on Monday. Yes, I did. So that means there's at least two generations below you that you're not accounting for. I know. So I have a 4.5 for the industry because I don't think I'm going to go with the full five. I don't think it's like a full-throated endorsement of these movies, but there's enough fervor and love and appreciation for these movies in the industry yet, at least from historians and comedians, et cetera, that I think there's enough to warrant a 4.5. But on the audience side, and this may be extra forgiving, but I went with a 1.5. So I have a six. I'm a little higher. I went with a full five
1: for the industry because I think that the ratings that you outlined from uh, the various polls, and such, the fact that these are held in such esteem, uh, the fact that this is considered one of the great political satires and kind of was the precursor to a lot of satire and politics, um, I gave it a five. For the public, I, you know, the fact that you can go even yet today and find Groucho glasses and eyebrows and mustache for Halloween costumes says that there's some level of recognition of the public. Groucho Marx is iconic, and I, I to less, much less extent, Chico and Harpo, but I think that there is at least four those that I would say are probably 45 and older, do have some recognition. It's not nearly as great as uh, others, but I went with a 2 for that for a 7 total.
0: So that's a 6.5 average between the two of us. Impact and significance.
1: I had the industry, I went with a 3.5. The fact that the critical review was both positive and negative seemed more positive than negative. The fact that even though this was the last film from Paramount, the brothers were able to get further movie contracts and were able to do future films in other studios. So I think there's some extent. So I wanted 3.5 for those reasons. It did finish fifth is a, I read the, as far as box office for 1933, which is no small feat, because uh, we were going through the Great Depression. One of the first things in this is uh, the notation right in the front of the film that we're in compliance with the NRA, which is the uh, uh, National Recovery Act, which was one of the first New Deal programs. So it kind of was a stark reminder that this film came out during a period of time where uh, what was it 18 or 20 percent of Americans were unemployed so the fact that it finished and drew is a big factor so I want the 4.5 for the public
0: a 4.5 Wow
1: it fifth for the year
0: okay at best because they didn't really keep great box office numbers the reported biographers said sixth. And this is in a time when they were releasing, like, 15 movies a year.
1: No, there were more movies than that, but... No,
0: there really weren't. You had to go through major production to get it to even that level. You had maybe, like, five major studios, and they would each release, like, three films a year. This is 1933. It's not even, like, 1943. Okay. So I agree with your score on the industry... So I really don't have much of a bone to pick with that or anything really to add. But on the the public side of it, given that Paramount saw this as somewhat of a failure, I don't think that this was nearly embraced for decades to come. It's only after the fact that it came to any significance with the public, I think, other than just being kind of like, oh, the Marx Brothers put out another film. I went with a split down the middle 2.5, so I have a 6.
1: I'll go down on the public one-half point, so I'll go with a
0: 7.5. You just wanted to make the math harder, didn't you? Of course. So that's a 6.75 average between the two of us. Novelty. I looked up and down to try and find a real political satire movie. I didn't really find one, you know, as much as political satire is basically the comedy of the moment, given the circumstances which with we find ourselves currently, this was way ahead of its time in poking fun at leaders or using caricature to lampoon them. It was not a time where we were used to poking fun at our leaders. In fact, we always look to them for quiet strength and leadership and that they could hold everything together if we just gave them our support. So to lampoon figures in this way is well ahead of its time. Also, the fact that it was not particularly received well in its time, I think is further evidence that it was ahead of its time. My only point down is going to be in the execution because for the few Marx Brothers films that I've seen, I don't put this ahead of several of the other ones. I personally put A Night at the Opera as their number one, but that's just me. And I think that there are great moments of execution, but it doesn't execute quite as consistently or at as high a level as some of the other films that I enjoy of theirs. So I have a nine.
1: Well, I'm also at a 9. I, I there is nothing. This really was the beginning of the of the political satire film and started that genre. Uh I gave it a point down in large part because I think to some extent that the the execution wasn't quite I think they toned down the satire to some extent because they didn't think it would play as well as it should. And so it's not quite the level of sharp wit that I would have liked to have seen necessarily. So I gave it a point down for that. But otherwise, yeah, it's completely
0: novel. Classicness. Normally I let you go first, but I I feel like I want to lead this one off. My big point on this, whether it's a musical or comedy, or whatever else. Does it age well has to do with how you emotionally respond. And for a comedy, do you still laugh? For a 90-year-old film to still be this funny, and again, I'm the comedy snob, it's pretty damn good. Almost 10-worthy. I take off a half a point only because there are a couple of the jokes that miss or go over my head because they needed context of the time. Or, as I mentioned, there are certain jokes that don't sit as well because they have a little bit of mean-spiritedness to them, particularly some of the fat-shaming comments, especially because Mrs. Teasdale was not even really that like large. So I, I don't know exactly what that was about. But it, it's just, again, if it's a 90 year old comedy that's still funny, I'm going to give it a
1: 9.5. I went with a nine for a lot of the same reasons you did. There are a few jokes that didn't age the best. There were some that were really funny. Some of the bits and skits were excellent. So I, I gave it just a little bit down for that. But again, you know, it, like you said, it's not a 90 year old film. The fact that something 90 years old can be still found funny. That's a big uh, a bonus. So
0: I went with a nine. Rewatchability. Because it is, what, 70 minutes long, 72 minutes long. This is not going to be something that I'm going to regret leaving on. Because you'll basically blink and it'll be over. However, the last part of the film really drags for me they did not know exactly what to do for satirization of war, especially being post-World War One and right before World War II. And it leaves me a little bit wanting for the last 10, 15 minutes of the film to have to watch that. I really kind of tune out by that point. The political humor, I think is still quite right on, but once they get to the war part, I kind of, it, it loses something for me. So, The first 45 minutes, fantastic. And it does give me the onus to watch other Marx Brothers films, so I have to give it a little bit of credit for that. I go for a three that I would put it on in the first place because I still think there is enough funny in here to warrant that. I would probably have a Night at the Opera even higher and a four that I would leave it on. So I have a seven. I have 7.5 because
1: this is one that I think that most people especially people that have a tendency to be a little more snooty because of you know they think they're too intellectual for the marx brothers this is one you could put on and convince people that there's more to the marx brothers than what they thought Uh, this is a film that i want to put on my list to rewatch periodically simply because it is so funny i haven't seen it now again and probably at least a decade. And I kind of regret the fact that I hadn't watched it again. So 7.5 for
0: me. So that's a 7.25 average between the two of us audience score for this one. We had an 84% for Google users, a 91% for rotten tomato users, giving us an 8.75. So to repeat the categories, we had a 6.5 for legacy, a 6.75 for impact and significance, a nine for novelty, a 9.25 for classicness and a 7.25 for rewatchability plus the audience score of 8.75 giving us a final total of 47.5 and currently placing it on our list tied with The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance Hmm. and one spot ahead of A Night at the Opera. (laughs) Okay. The list has some strange symmetry sometimes. Yes. Remaining questions for this one? I don't have any. I tried. I I really took like a full half hour to think, is there anything about this film that I really feel like I need to know? I think for all the major plot lines, it wrapped everything up. There weren't any real loose ends as far as I'm concerned. And it's somewhat of a comedy, so you kind of just forgive anything else with that. So there weren't any major plot holes that weren't at least something you could poke fun of. I I'm good. The only thing I would comment is, is it was
1: obvious at this point in time that Zeppo was going to be out because his role in this was so minimal. I mean, I can't, you know, what was he in three scenes, four scenes?
0: Yeah, I suppose he definitely was not a focus of the film. And unless you really identified him, like if this is the first March Brothers movie you would watch, you would have to look at the IMDb cast list to basically know who he was playing. It was not a memorable character. It was not anybody in the forefront in any regard. He was just kind of there.
1: Yes. He never really developed the character that the other three brothers managed to create. And I, I guess to some extent it's the fact that they got in or went into film from vaudeville before the, the two youngest brothers ever had an opportunity to really develop.
0: So I guess we move on to final thoughts for the week.
1: Well, we, uh, you, I, and mom, or should say mom, you, and I went to see Napoleon.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: I enjoyed the film. It was highly entertaining to me. It helps tremendously if you have a background in European history Uh, so that you can follow along, because it does a really poor job of explaining the time frames and what's exactly taking place. And unfortunately, the script left what could have been a pretty fine performance by Joaquin Phoenix, basically as a two-dimensional Napoleon, really not providing much in the way of explanation of what he was or what made him tick, or why he impacted European history so You know, on a scale of one to 10, I would say it's about a five, five and a half, simply because I like the cinematography. I like the war scenes and the action. I think it was a generally well done film, but the script and how it was portrayed, there could have been so much more done with this.
0: There are a lot of Ridley Scott movies that I like. There are a lot of Ridley Scott movies that are decent, if not at least tolerable. This one, I was completely fucking bored in. It was a visual Wikipedia entry for two and a half hours. Some of the scenes were very well directed as set pieces, as large-scale war set pieces. But that does not make a movie. This movie lacks point of view, It lacks anything that it's really trying to say or accomplish or let us know about the character or his wife or the circumstances in Europe at the time or why this man is revered or important because realistically, Napoleon is one of the defining figures of his era of probably an era before and after him as well, because he kind of bookends one era, at least in European politics, and he begets at least militarily, another complete era after him. But we have almost nothing said about that. And so we just go through these amalgamation of scenes where we flit from one supposedly important event in his life to the next without adding any context really or any through line for two and a half hours. I don't see what the importance of this film is And I think it's unfortunately one of the biggest misses of the year. And I'm always hard on biopics, but this one, woo boy, does it take the cake? It is comfortably inside my bottom 10 for the year. Now that's not a huge list because I don't watch a lot of newer films in the same way that some people do. I get in a lot more TV than I do necessarily films, but Other than some of the monstrosities that we've had this year from like the comic book franchises, this is like right up there with them. As far as I'm concerned, it was a true disappointment, even though I was not expecting much from this film. I know I kind of drug you to it because I was curious, you know, I mean,
1: I have a background in Russian history, so I was curious as to how they were going to portray the invasion of Russia and such. And again, this was almost more documentary than expose and i guess to that extent i was a little disappointed
0: but even a documentary has a point
1: of view uh, yeah it, it it fell flat let's just put it that way Again, it was like scenes from a life yeah it there wasn't anything that it didn't explain much realistically we today. The way military or armies are organized was established by Napoleon. You have companies, regiments, divisions. That's how Napoleon did it. And he created what is the modern military by his organization. Some of that would have been interesting to see exactly why he was considered to be a military genius. But you only got a little taste of it once in a while You know, where they kind of did some strategy that kind of looked like, you know, he knew something more than what everybody else did. But even that, the Battle of Auschwitz or Austerlitz, excuse me, is factually wrong. So, So you can't even you can't even rely on that to see his brilliance as a
0: as a field commander. I don't really have anything more to add than what I've already said as far as that goes. It would be like beating a dead horse of which there were many in this film. That is true. This is one where this will
1: eventually find its way onto streaming. If you like history,
0: it's an Apple production. It'll be on streaming in two weeks.
1: I see. All right. That's true. So, um, this is one, if you have Apple TV, I would save my money unless I really wanted to go out and have some popcorn and have a date night in the theater but just save your money and watch it on Apple if you're into history. If you really don't care,
0: eh, don't bother. You're suggesting this, a two and a half hour biopic of uninterestingness, as a date night film? Well, there were moments. The in girl there where must you could... really love you if she's willing to go to this.
1: Yeah, well, there are plenty of opportunities where you could probably do some heavy necking in the film or in the uh, theater without missing much.
0: Two and a half hours worth. I mean, (laughs) that would be much more interesting than the film. Yeah, there was a time. I guess the other thing I'll mention is, is we have a, let's say kernel of an idea. So last year as the only one of my siblings that had new years and Christmas, available to spend with both of my parents. My mother loves to cook. My father loves movies. And a couple of years ago, I got a TCM cookbook that corresponded with certain films. So for, like, Casablanca, it had a cocktail recipe. And is it a, a dagine? Or I can't remember the, like, Moroccan-specific dish. But it had something that was like the national dish of Morocco available. And they had a recipe in there for that so that you could combine it and basically have your meal that was themed and tie it with the movie. So we did that with several different selections. I think we did The Apartment. We did Stagecoach. There were a couple others in there that I'm forgetting. And we're doing that again this year, but we're going off book. So I have allowed my family to each pick their own movie. And then I will craft a menu in addition to that. We might take a little opportunity to uh, change a few of the recipes just slightly, but we would like to know if any of you have any suggestions or ideas for menus or dinner in a movie type of scenarios, or what would be your best recipe to send us that you could tie something together doesn't necessarily have to be a holiday movie that you could have a dinner and movie type of thing with your family you can cook and make an extravagant themed meal and tie it with a movie selection so if you would like to send it to us or uh, have any comments on how we scored the film tonight greatest all-time movie podcast at gmail.com is our show email or you can contact us via the website, ronnyduncanstudios.com backslash podcast. You can have us available at either place, or you can have us on any of our socials. Currently, we are on Letterboxed. That's a newer one for us. We have a Facebook page. Twitter and Instagram and TikTok are all at podcast. And as of today, we just uploaded or finished uploading our YouTube channel, with all of our back catalog episodes because Google podcasts has gone the way of the dodo bird. So if you uh, are a YouTube user or YouTube fan, you can find our episodes on there now as well.
1: We are also interested if anybody is of whether you would like to hear a bonus episode where we talk about our movies and dinner escapades. If that's the case, let us know. We'll be glad to consider doing a special episode to throw in uh, about this, um, maybe helping give you some ideas of things to do as well.
0: So that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. A gun is a tool, Marion, no better or no worse than any other tool, an axe, a shovel, or anything. A gun is as good or as bad as the man using it. Remember that. We'd all be much better if there wasn't a single gun left in this valley, including yours. Next week, for our 193rd episode, we discuss the Western classic Shane from 1953, celebrating its 70th anniversary this year. Directed by George Stevens, written by A.B. Guthrie Jr., music by Victor Young, starring Alan Ladd, Gene Arthur, and Jack Palance. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in under fun. You can also email the show at the new com or at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, X, Letterboxed, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast.